0: Linda Rosenbaum was born in Detroit, Michigan, and graduated from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Years later, she moved to Canada. She has been married to her husband, Robin Christmas, for 36 years, and they have two children, both of whom are adopted. Their son, Michael, is now 33, and their daughter, Sarah, is 31. They live in a small community on an island that's a 10-minute ferry ride from downtown Toronto. Linda is a writer, editor, and has worked in TV and films. Above all, she'd like to say that she is a wife, mother, and advocate for people living with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Tell the story of the mountains you climbed. Your words could become a page in someone else's survival guide. Morgan Harper Nichols. I have been waiting so long for this interview, everyone. I am beyond thrilled to be speaking with Linda Rosenbaum, the author of Not Exactly As Planned. Linda's book was the first book I read about FASD. And it was in a very dark time in my life. It was actually when our son was beginning to self-harm. He was beginning to have very severe symptoms. And it was a time where I knew that I needed to read this book. I knew that God put this book in my life for a reason. I read voraciously. I couldn't put it down. And I know she has a folder. Uh, She's going to tell us about the folder that says I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it down. And when I was done reading it, I handed it over to my husband and he read it. And then In the book, she discusses Trying Differently Rather Than Harder by Diane Melbourne, and that was the next book I read. And then that's how we began our journey for our son's FASD diagnosis. So after this very lengthy introduction, Linda Rosenbaum, thank you and welcome to FASD Hope.
1: Natalie, we talked about how we tear up often talking about our children and just hearing your introduction, the tears started.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's lovely to be here. And I'm really happy to, um, well, I'm, I'm looking at you, but I know it's a podcast, but anyways, I'm really happy that the book has had an impact oh. and I've heard from other people that it has to, and trust me, nothing could make an author happier.
0: Absolutely. And not only did it have an impact and it continues to have an impact, but you're writing, I love the way you write because you kept me so engaged. You know, Your story is so powerful. And not only your story as a mother, but how you became an advocate for the FASD community. It's so powerful. I, I couldn't, literally, I couldn't put it down because not only did I wanna learn about this condition that I knew our son had, but I also wanted to keep hearing about your story and your journey. Um, so not only is it just a wonderful book introducing the readers to FASD and what FASD is, but it's just your your writing is just so riveting. I, I really, again, I'm an avid reader, and at that time I was not reading many books because I was just trying to survive. And you know, you know about that. But but I just I am so so thankful that, that you are here. Um, so this is going to be a love fest. If you're listening to us talking, this is just going to be two, two, two ladies, just, you know, you know, I just, I am so Beyond thrilled to be talking to Linda today. So Linda, if and for those of you who have not read Linda's book, Not Exactly as Planned, I'm going to plug it several times. And it's on, not only is it on Amazon, but it's also on the FASD website under our resources page under books. Um, so Linda, let's talk a little bit, just give us a short background about your family and your family's journey into FASD. Sure.
1: Um, My husband and I had been married a few years, we certainly wanted to have a family It wasn't happening. And we were open to adoption and um, Michael came our way, it was a domestic adoption and we were very thrilled. And Michael was born, we live here in Toronto, and um, we were able to visit him in the hospital on day four, and we were able to bring him home at day seven. And um, I've mentioned this several times. I I truly believe there's something magical about the act of bonding because the moment Michael was placed in my arms, well, I'm getting teary. I I absolutely fell in love and something, I I say the word magical blessings, however you want to describe it, but something of Michael, our souls connected. It happened for my husband too. I think it happens all the time. You know bonding is is bonding and it's very real, but thank God for bonding yes. because we brought Michael home madly in love with this little blonde haired blue eyed guy, and he felt it felt like he was suffering, he wasn't comfortable in his skin, he was sensitive to sounds and and noises and you know lights, and he just needed to, you know they talk about how good swaddling is. If he could have been swaddled 24-7, that probably would have been good for him. And it was painful to watch. I mean, he wasn't like this all the time. And, you know, he was, there was a sweetness to him and he smiled and whatever. But very early on, I felt that there was something wrong with him. And I couldn't bear the thought, so I suppressed it. And if I said something to my husband, of course he wanted to reassure me. But I think mothers feel something that the fathers or other people may not. And this went on for a good long time. You know, he began developing. His milestones weren't the same as other people. But I guess I can just say I I didn't think he was comfortable in his skin. And I felt something was wrong. And everybody, including our very wonderful pediatrician, said, you're being anxious, Mom. He's fine so what you want to believe he's fine right so you know I took the rap I was an anxious mom and by nature I'm not anxious but I probably was being somewhat anxious because I had this little guy who I felt was suffering and he had colic and I don't know those kids really suffer from mm-hmm. colic you know, they say the kids don't feel it and it's fine it's natural I think colic's really rough on kids. Yeah, so that was yeah.
0: Hard to watch our our daughter had colic, and and it was during this time when I read your book. Actually, it was one of those nights I was up. Yeah, and colic is oh my goodness, it's it's brutal. It yeah, is, yeah. 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 So, so like so many, and, and again, I'm going to do this just because you and I, I, I have about 10 post-it notes here about how many things we have in common. And that was, that's how it was for us. When we brought our son home, he had a lot of medical, just like you said, he wasn't comfortable in his skin. You know, we were taking him to different specialists because he was born with medical issues And again, it was the same thing, you know, oh, well, you're just being over anxious or you're, you know, it's, he's going to be fine and everything. And as a mom, your heart breaks because you just want to take that discomfort and pain away from your baby, especially you're thinking about all they've, they've been through. So, yeah. And I, I wrote down also how Michael and, and our son, when you have a child that has an FASD, often. In the infant and baby stages, they present more with like the medical sensory sleep issues. Those come out first.
1: I forgot, but you brought it up. Michael, within the first year of his life, he had seen seven different specialists. Wow. I even forget what they were. He Mm -hmm. had constant ear problems. He had a heart murmur. He wasn't growing properly. I think they would probably call him failure to Mm -hmm. thrive now. He wasn't putting on weight and he yeah. wasn't growing, so he had an endocrine specialist. Yeah, I, I can't even remember, and I, it's probably a good thing. And
0: we that. had a breathing, we had a pulmonary oh, because that's right.
1: he had asthma. asthma.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There are two other specialists. <laughs> I kept saying, um, "Yep." Thank God we live in Canada because I can't imagine oh. that we don't have to pay. F- yeah.
0: <laughs> pay taxes,
1: but we don't have yeah. to pay for them, and I just kept thinking we were so blessed because yeah. we got tremendous care, but. One more thing, I totally forgot about that. But he,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as they say, he presented with all kinds of physical problems.
0: So if you're listening and if you have an infant, you know, or a newborn and and you're concerned, those those medical issues usually present first, along with the sleep, along with the failure to thrive, along with the sensory, especially the sensory. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm just so glad you're saying this because again, I, I'm looking at my my big old list of post-it notes. And I'm thinking that's one of the very first things that we we have in common because yeah. those, and again, they'll present differently in each child, but those areas of their development are affected most throughout the course of their life. But we see that first, you know, when they're babies are, are those issues. And, and so, like you said, so we see specialists and the specialists Never connected the dots for say, for your son and for my son. Never connected the dots. Nope. Nope. So as he came into, you know, preschool, how did things progress then? So he continued to have, he was a, he was a darling kid. He was fun and
1: good in all kinds of ways and difficult in all kinds of ways as well. And we were lucky where we lived. There was a Montessori school, meaning he was able to get very special attention because he was in a small group preschool and they were wonderful with him. They figured out right away that this kid cannot sit still. This kid's got to get up and walk around. This guy is not moving from one side of the room. When we ask him to the other side of the room, he needs all kinds of reminders that a transition is, is going to happen. And they worked great with him and he, he did really well. And he was a fun loving You'd probably call him mischievous kid, and surprisingly, he turned out to be a leader because, you know, he'd organize everybody. We're all going to crawl under the tables, you know, as a choo-choo train or whatever. So he became a leader, and it felt really good. Then all hell broke loose when he went into the public school system, and uh, I was very lucky, I thought, um, because the Montessori teachers offered to go to the public school and speak to the teachers to tell them what worked with Michael. And I thought, great. You know, they would tell them this thing about, you know, he can't sit still and transitions are difficult. So give him reminders. At recess, don't let him just go out and play because he could easily get in trouble. Give him, you know, have him clean the chalkboard, you know, whatever, make up some activity for him to do to feel good about himself. To be perfectly honest, they weren't interested. You know, everybody's got a lot on their plates and it just wasn't working to have a kid who had a special needs in a regular school classroom. And he started getting in trouble. He'd go out in the playground and I think kids were teasing him all the time. So he'd throw stones back and he'd be the one getting in trouble. Not that he shouldn't get in trouble for throwing stones, but it was because it was too unstructured. He needed more help. They didn't like it that he needed to walk around in the classroom. I mean, I get that. It, it can be disruptive they didn't have the time or energy or inclination to remind to say in five minutes we're going to move to this activity in three minutes we're going to move
0: Mm -hmm. to these things make huge differences and we know that now but when we're thinking about when michael was young or even when our son was young it was much different. People were not really talking about sensory needs and, 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 you know, taking sensory breaks and things like that. Those things really didn't start coming out until about maybe 10 years ago, even 12, 15 years ago, if I want to be generous, you know, back when our kids, when our sons were young, they were really just more like, okay, well, you know, take away Take away recess, which is you don't take away recess because that's what they need to regulate themselves, you know, or you try to discipline them, which we know you can't discipline a disability.
1: Exactly. I also think that there was disregard for the belief that there really is such a thing as FASD. Agreed.
0: It's, Agreed.
1: Um, because it manifests itself so differently in so many kids. Yes, What we used to get an old expression. I don't know people if people even use it anymore. Well, boys will be boys. Mm -hmm. My hunch is that those boys, being boys, generations and generations ago, very well may have had undiagnosed FASD or some other kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. brain-based diagnosis exactly Mm -hmm. that go along with it. Yeah. So, you know, it was a soft diagnosis to them. Oh, FASD. So that didn't mean anything to him. And I have to say, I hated. I had behavioral people at the school, mm-hmm. teachers. They called him bad. Yeah. Well, Michael's not bad. Michael's difficult, and I really, really understand that. Mm-hmm. But I hated this good and bad thing. Mm-hmm. That really made me nuts. And with the right situation and the right care and whatever, whatever they were calling bad, it wasn't Michael. And that always got my back up. I have to say that was very hard for
0: me. Yeah and i'm sure for the people who are listening they have heard that especially if their child has been you know misdiagnosed or, or undiagnosed what the world sees as quote bad behaviors unquote are really symptoms of a fit that's not happening. So obviously, you know, that was not a good fit for Michael in in that school and and the school was not equipped. We had the same issues, you know, (laughs) until we just eventually, I stopped working and we started homeschooling, you know, because every single school environment we tried just didn't work out, you know, or maybe it'd work out for a little bit, but then it, it wouldn't. So let's talk about you also, at the same time, you adopted your daughter. And again, I resonated with, because even though our kids are much far apart in, in age than yours our we have a 13 year age gap. I know you, your daughter and your, and Michael are not, not as far apart, yeah. but one of the things that resonated, one of the many things that resonated with me is you talk about, and you share about how you have this beautiful, typically developing daughter, and you are, consumed with what's going on with Michael and, and, you know, getting him a diagnosis and getting him care and whatnot. And you have feeling, you know, you share that you had feelings of you wanted to give your daughter double attention because you felt like Michael was consuming. And as a mom, Linda, you you know, when I read that and when I hear that, it's just like, yes, I feel the same way. You know, I, I really try my husband and I really try to give our daughter so much time. And I remember now that, you know, our son is obviously he's he's more stable and he's in a better place. But seven years ago, six years ago, when this was all starting I don't know about you, but we just, it was almost just like you're in survival mode for that time until you could get the right care and get the right accommodations. I think it's
1: hard um, for the siblings of uh, kids with special needs, whatever it is. I I think Sarah, besides feeling what about me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's that. I I think in many ways, Sarah being the kind of very sensitive person she is, I think she felt the need that she had to make up for some of the suffering, what she perceived as suffering or the, the, the challenges caused by Michael. And it, uh, it, it, this was a self-imposed pressure on right. myself, trust me. Yeah. We didn't think like that. Sarah didn't have to make up for anything. Yeah. And, you know, yes, life is difficult with Michael, but we loved him to pieces, mm-hmm. it's just the way it goes. So I think, it'd be, I think this whole sibling thing is very complex. And yeah. one year we had sent Michael to a special needs camp and they had some very great counselors there. And one of the counselors uh, during the school year ran a special weekend called What About Me for the siblings of special needs kids. And so Sarah with other siblings went away to the sort of camp weekend and they, you know, talked all about what, what about me? And it was, she just came back. She felt less alone. And she got lots of attention. She realized that she was normal to have all these, you know, feelings and whatever. And I, I, I see lots of siblings do really well, and they mm-hmm. love their special needs, yeah, whatever. And a, some is more difficult. For I mean, you know, Sarah is also adopted. She has mm-hmm. her own special needs in yeah. different ways. So I, yeah, it's the sibling issue. I think it's great that they have each other and I think there's deep love, but I'd say even today, it's a complex relationship.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And as a mom, it's, it's, it's challenging for us because you're like, because again, we have a very different adoption story with our daughter versus our son, you know? So again, just thinking about reading that book and just talking with you, I'm just so thankful that you're able to share it because again, so many people, just need to hear this, your, your journey, because it applies to so many of us, you know, know,
1: it's hard to share. People really say often to me, thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing. You know, it's hard because there's no guidebook. The truth is you're flying by the seat of your pants. You don't really know what you're doing and you're running by instinct. And my friends, I have wonderful friends and family. They couldn't answer anything for me. They really couldn't. And I don't like complaining all the time. And I remember saying to my, talking to people and saying, I'd be, let's say I had a bad day and I was Michael did this, Michael did that. I would always end it with, but I love them. I love them. It's Mm -hmm. like I needed to prove to them. I felt felt bad, like I was bad mouthing my son. And I guess in a way you are, but you don't know what to do because there's not really, you know, I had loving family and Mm -hmm. they wanted to help me, but
0: they didn't understand. Yeah.
1: They really didn't understand and they yeah. couldn't. And one of the things that I learned, and this isn't in the order probably that we're talking, but it was really important for me to connect with other people who had children with special needs, especially FAS, yes. because I found nobody could really, really understand mm-hmm. what it's like and the toll it takes on us and the challenges we face other than people in the same boat. Yes. My other people are empathetic. They're sympathetic. They're kind. They're well-meaning, but they don't know what it is we both.
0: Exactly. And, and I agree that, you know, when I read your book, it was before we found our, our parent support group. And when we did, it was just exactly confirming what you're saying. When you find your, we call it your tribe, you know, your tribe of people that either they're they're parents of kids that have an FASD or other, you know, complex special needs. They get that, you know, when you can tell them hey, you know, we had to do this today or hey, this happened today. And, you know, you feel like if you shared it with anybody else, you, you they'd be calling the police. But then, you know, you share it with the people that who yeah. understand and they're like, oh yeah, that happened to us. You know, oh, here's what you do. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, that is so important. I'm so glad you're bringing that up because so many of us need that connection with somebody else who truly gets it.
1: Yeah. Yeah it was online mostly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, I, I, it wasn't, there weren't people, you know, physically that I was getting together with, but right. Yeah. But no, it really made a difference
0: and it's grown. I'm so happy to see how much it's grown. I don't know about you, but oh my goodness, especially I'm thinking like in, in the six and a half, seven years since we started this, this FASD journey for our son, we we've just seen th- the groups on social media, the, the Zooms, the support groups, everything. It's, there was it's nothing. No, no, I know
1: nothing. nothing, nothing. No, I fabulous. know. Really you know? That album was this fabulous resource. Yes. There were other people out there. There was a wonderful couple in Toronto that ran a support group you know, that was great. There were people here and there, and there were medical professionals, you know, they're starting to grow. Mm -hmm. But the fact that, I mean, you have a podcast, I mean, the (laughs) idea that somebody actually had a podcast.
0: If you You had told me when I was reading your book, (laughs) if you had told me when I was reading your book, you're going to, you're going to interview this lovely woman who who opened your eyes to FASD, and you're going to have a podcast about FASD, I would have just... Oh my goodness! I would have yeah, cried yeah. more than I was crying already.
1: <laughs> well, it would be—it would have been shocking to me yeah. to think that there's enough people who you would listen to. I know. You know, listen to you—that that that you could have a market out there or whatever it's called. Yeah. So it is amazing.
0: Which is an, another takeaway, I think, from your journey, and and what I've learned too is that your story matters. And like I said, your words were my survival guide. They really were. And your word saying, read Diane Malvin's book. Again, that was book number two. As soon as I was done with yours, that's, that was the next book I bought. And really, I mean, I think for us, and I don't know if you've encountered this, but for us, I think the best advice we received about FASD was from other parents who had kids with it within FASD. Yeah. And
1: keeping in mind, that every kid is different.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And one of the things where I ran into, uh, issues, um, I'll, I'll just take one step back, Michael, when he, he wound up getting expelled from grade one, you know, I told you everything fell apart. Yes. When kid,
0: um, yeah,
1: first grade. And then our pediatrician said, you know, maybe there is something wrong with Michael and referred us to the child Deve- development clinic. the hospital for sick children here and he was diagnosed after days of testing with fetal alcohol syndrome that's what it was called then and i had such mixed reactions to getting the diagnosis on one hand oh my god michael has something that's going to follow him the rest of his life but i'm a positive person so i thought well great now we can You know, because I thought, okay, we're going to do this, they're going to tell me to do this and that and this is going to happen and all these things were going to fall into place which of course, they don't, they certainly didn't do it in 1980s. They still
0: don't do it.
1: (laughs) It didn't happen. But I also felt, I, I realized that I knew more about my child than anybody did and I was right there was something wrong and I do think mothers get bad raps and they do get called anxious and overbearing and all these words that the mothers get called that the fathers don't get called. And I think mothers need to realize that you really, really do know your kid. Doesn't mean we can't learn and that other people don't have all kinds of resources and knowledge to help us, but we do know our kids. And any guilt that I had, like, oh my God, I've really messed this kid up because if I am this anxious mother, you know, I'm creating all this. So it wipes away all the guilt. And, you know, that's a nice thing, because there's something physically wrong with him as opposed to me emotionally messing him up. And then you start moving forward and you just take, you know, a step at a time. But um I, I started to say the one of the things that I had to be very careful about listening to advice was when it came to medications. Yeah, And I, I totally repeat that every kid is different. And yes. just because something worked for our son doesn't mean it's going to work for anybody else. But Michael has very severe ADD. And at that time, people didn't even think ADD was necessarily a real thing. Trust me, attention deficit disorder is a real thing. And at the hospital, they wanted to put Michael on a triple blind study, meaning to really study whether medication would help him or not. So he was given a placebos for a couple of weeks to see if anybody thought he was better. Then they gave him one dose of the med to see if anybody thought anything had changed. And then a different dose another week and so on. And the person who knew exactly when he felt better was Michael. I mean, we all could tell when he was on a placebo because there was no difference. And he was on a low dose of the, and, um, the ADD med. And we could see a little bit of improvement, but they thought maybe it could be better. And when he hit the right dose, that's when he started to learn how to read. He could mm-hmm. sit still long enough to read. You know, he's, uh, the world sort of opened to him. So meds were a godsend for Michael, and there were no obvious side effects. And he's still on meds to this day, and there's mm-hmm. no obvious side effects. Do I know if they're having some unobvious effects? No, but they played a really positive role in his life.
0: Yeah, and we know that there's over 400 comorbid diagnoses that go with having an FASD. Yeah. So, but again, like you said, what works for one child is going to be different for another child. And, and I think that's just not in FASD, but in other diagnoses too, Absolutely. you know.
1: Sorry, I did find people who were saying to me, you don't want to put your child on drugs. Uh, they'll yeah. have to take mm-hmm. the rest of their life. Well, I don't know. Do I want to put my child in Who wants to put their child on drugs? Nobody wants to put their child on drugs, but if they need drugs, you put them on drugs. You're not going to tell a person with diabetes not to take drugs. Exactly,
0: exactly. So they really
1: didn't get what it was. And so there was this stigma about Mm -hmm. meds and I I didn't appreciate that. Yeah,
0: there shouldn't be.
1: And they also thought, they didn't even want me to, there There were some people who said, well, don't take them to the clinic because he'll get a diagnosis. And a diagnosis will follow him the rest of his life. I said, mm-hmm. he's already got a label. He's called a bad kid. That's mm-hmm. going to follow him the rest of his life. And, you know, so I think people are can be very well-meaning. I don't me- think people are not well-meaning, but it doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. Yeah, And I also think people like hearing themselves give advice or they think they know about something. Maybe mm-hmm. they're not
0: well-meaning. <laughs> yeah, no, I there agree 100%. Because,
1: you know take him, his whole problem is sugar. Take him off sugar and mm-hmm. everything's going to go away. Or oh, gluten
0: or something. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
1: guess what? Everything's going to go away. <laughs> yeah. And every time somebody says, this is going to work, you get your hopes up. Yes. You want to believe it's true. Oh, yes. you know, we, we're following the wrong path. Yeah. And it's very hard on the parents.
0: Again, I'm using the words of another guest, but I think when you get that official diagnosis, and for us, it took almost 15 years for our son to get that actual FASD diagnosis on paper. But it's, relief because it has a name. So for all those years, you know, you're thinking, and I remember reading your book and, and you, you were you said you were like walking in your house and you, you know, you wanted to have friends over, but poor Michael just couldn't be soothed and everything. I'm thinking of similar situations. I'm, I'm thinking back to the, the first house, my husband and I lived in and walking around and having, you know, our son just being so uncomfortable and everything. And and again, you know, oh, people want to come visit him. You know, I, you know, I just want him to, to be comfortable, but thinking about that and then all of the years that followed afterwards, and then for us finally get the, getting that diagnosis, there's relief. Again, you have a name, you know, you have a name and then there is grief because you have to go through this grieving process as, as a parent that things are going to be different and there's going to be things that won't happen for, for your child. However, for me, it's just like if you have, and just like if you, just like you said, if you have diabetes, or if you have, for me, for example, my personal, I had endometriosis, and for five years, no one believed me until one surgeon, you know, believed me. So I, I can only imagine what our sons, what it's like for people, you know, saying, "Oh, you're just being bad," or "You can do this," or anything, when they physically can't because their brain has been impacted by alcohol and they cannot do something that people are asking them to do.
1: I think you brought up something really important, Natalie, um, Michael, for sure. And sounds perhaps your son. He seems way more capable than he is. He's yes. very articulate. Yes. He yes. has a gift for language. Yeah. And I think that kind of bamboozles people. Yeah. He, knows, mm-hmm. like he really knows what's going on. Yeah. But he has a gift for language yeah. and really doesn't necessarily know what's going on. Yeah. And he just, you know, he carries himself well, and there's a sense of confidence. He seems like he can do more than he really can. So he's always, you can do better, you can do better. Well, If he could do better, he would do better. Yes. You know, he was called lazy. I don't believe there is such a thing as lazy, personally, I think there's an underlying cause that makes people appear what seems to be lazy. Something's standing in their way of being their
0: best. And and I think once we got that diagnosis and you and I were talking before we started recording, once you get the diagnosis, for me, that like uh, you go through that grieving, you go through that time, but then you want to learn as much as you can about the disability because then you wanna learn, okay, I can't take this away, but how can I help my child as much as possible? You know, and I, I I remember reading about you, you reading about that. So you learned more and you read trying differently rather than harder. And you, you went to workshops and you, you, you became, not only did you become a more empowered mother, but then you became an advocate. So I know we're fast forwarding ahead a little bit, but at what point, I know you say it in your book at what point did you go from okay, you're Michael's advocate to okay, you're an advocate for the FASD community
1: Oh, that's a really good question you know, I don't know if I ever consciously was doing that except I did realize that um, number one, nobody loves our children the way we do yeah. and nobody's going to fight for them but but us yeah yeah I realized that the public school system, You know, they have their own needs to fill classrooms with X number of people and they have budget issues and you have individual teachers who are great, but they're not going to be there to follow your kid that nobody's going to fight for your kid. And I I realized that I, I can speak well. And I had, I had fire in me. This was my son and I had to get the best life I could for him. Trust me, I was not always successful and you know in the end he wound up dropping out of school at the end of grade 8 and i had done everything i can to work with school systems including a private school system but he just shut down yeah. got so bad and he there was no way he was going
0: However, you discovered his gift and that resonated because our son is a woodworker and a carpenter too. And I love, I have this written down to, to totally ask you, I love how you said, because our son, okay, first of all, when he was about your son's age, when you were talking about grade eight or so, that's when we started having the punching the holes in the walls. I remember you mentioned that. And that was one of the first things my husband taught our son to do like, okay, you, you punch this hole. This is how we're going to drywall it and fix it up. So, uh, you yeah. know, we, he <laughs> did that. We and He, <laughs> yeah, he, he learned, you know, quickly, but this is so funny. So around that age, when, when symptoms, you know, we're trying to get a diagnosis and symptoms were increasing, I wrote down that you said that, I loved how Michael and, and our son does too, had a fascination with knives and things that cut and things like that. And how our kids choose interests that we don't specifically either understand or care for or like even, you know, and, and we're like, why does he have this fascination with knives and everything like that? And then like Michael, Nick went to a, um, a a two week like a day camp and a wonderful, wonderful nonprofit. We've spoken about Josh's hope here in North Carolina. And one of the things he learned was carpentry and woodwork. And he came home and I was like, oh my goodness, you have like a 50 year old carpenter inside you. You have this amazing gift. And I think I told you this, but the the very desk that I'm podcasting from, our son made for us as a Christmas gift last year. And that to me is like a physical reminder of the gifts that he has inside that, that the world doesn't get to see, but that we as moms, you know, or, or the very few people in our circle were blessed that we're able to see. And I love, you know, when I friended you on Facebook and I saw, especially this past holiday, there was... an exhibit of Michael's woodwork and Michael's artistry. And that just made my heart feel so full and so happy because I'm just thinking, wow, how cool is that, that he has come into his own as as an artist and as a woodworker and as a carpenter?
1: Yeah. I mean, it really started from him having
0: this obsession with knives yeah, and swords. Swords, Swords, yes, yes, yes. Military stuff, yeah, knives yeah. and sort, yeah, yeah.
1: It wasn't sitting well with us. I know. And then one day we saw him on a stoop sitting and using a knife to whittle. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden our brains went, oh, he's whittling. Yeah, yeah. Robin signed the two of them up for wood carving. Mm-hmm. And it just, it developed from there. And who knew? He yeah. didn't have a clue. I mean, no. he didn't know. He didn't know he had it in him. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because- he always carves animals Yeah, and they're never malevolent animals. They're always bears mm-hmm. or wolves that, yes. you know, they, I wouldn't go as far as to say that they have a smile on their face, <laughs> but, they're, but they're, you know, they are never mean animals. Yeah. He feels comfortable, you know, I'm sure he feels more comfortable with animals than he does with people. Mm-hmm. Really, and that's part of it. And it makes them, Feel good, and he has this. I mean, he's really not capable of having a job, yeah, yeah, and working for someone. Though he's done some, you know, he's worked for a woodworker and Mm -hmm. clean up work and around. But you know, he's Michael. He he has his limitations, but he has this real gift, and people compliment him all the time. Mm -hmm. And Michael, we love your work, and can we buy this? He sells his carvings around Christmas time, so he makes a little bit of money and makes him feel great. And it really, it came from this obsession with knives. And mm-hmm. so I tell people, we didn't know Michael had this in him. I mean, Michael shouldn't know he had it in him. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, first of all, we have to realize not exactly as plants, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're not going to become doctors. Well, some may, I can't mm-hmm. say that, but you know, they're not following, generally they're not following the traditional route. Right, Teachers, right. doctors, lawyers, engineers, or whatever. And sometimes they have these weird obsessions. So I, I know um, a family where the son with FASD developed this fascination with snakes. Well, the last thing on earth the parents wanted <laughs> was the to be fascinated with snakes. Well, he just became—he's not a herpetologist. I think that's a you know. But um, right. you know, he's he works in a in a you know a pet shop, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he's the one who handles the snake. I mean, he's used it to develop some kind of life for himself. Yeah. So I really encourage people. Yes. Um, if you see them sort of getting obsessed with something, I mean, you know, even if just maybe try to find a way to encourage, you know, to swerve them Yes. gently in a, in a way that might work for them.
0: It's, it's interesting because I think back and Nick used to around that time, he used to whittle also. So, Well, I
1: think many of them like working with their hands. Yes. For Michael, it's part of the fidgeting. Yes. Yes.
0: And you bring up this amazing point, Linda, that I want to point out. And I'm going to write this down for our program notes, that the things that they're obsessed about if you can take it and you can turn it into something positive, you know, he could have gone a different direction with the knives, but he didn't, you were able, you know, I, just like, I'm thinking, you know, Nick could have gone a totally different direction with the knives, but he didn't, he, he turned it. And now it's funny. Well, it's not funny, haha, but it's, it's kind of like ironic that, you know, I was afraid for him to have blades because I was afraid he was going to hurt himself. And now he works with things that could, Chop his hand off, but thank goodness he, you know, he, he doesn't because when like Michael, when he's in the zone of woodworking or making, you know, a, a piece of furniture or following, you know, following his teacher or something, when he's in that zone, he is like got all of the hyper focus into that one thing. And that's a gift. So I am so thankful that you're telling our audience that even if, you know, you just don't know what you're, kid teen young adult that has an FASD you don't know what they're doing but they're obsessed with something or they they perseverate about something I love what you did and and your words are part of my survival guide because you took that obsession that he had and you turned it into you helped him to discover his gift and that's that's what it's, we no, did I
1: think it really may take time for uh you know this kind of
0: yeah, it's a mind shift and you have to, you you have to shift your mindset as a parent. And that's very hard to do.
1: Yeah. And um, what I see also, um, Michael's in his thirties now, and we're still seeing change and maturation. They always talk about yeah. uh, kids with FASD being 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. first I heard seven years behind. And then I, then I heard 10. I mean, I'd go even further than that, but my husband and I, Robin, we're noticing changes in Michael. He's 33 now. And he said I mean a simple thing. He's starting to say thank you more often
0: mm-hmm. than
1: he ever did before. He's um you just got a pet and he's taking responsibility. Michael couldn't take responsibility for something else, and he has to buy food and, and feed the pet. He couldn't have done this before. So something there's definitely something that's happening. Yeah. And he's still he's in his 30s. So I just want people to try to feel
0: hopeful. And that gives me hope because our son is almost 19. And I, again, I was telling you before we started recording, I, you know, I have a very dear friend who, you know, her kids are in their twenties and they have an FASD. And she has told me, she's like, there is that jump, you know, there are a couple of jumps. So your words are reassuring me, which I know will reassure other listeners too, that we don't understand the, how the brain, you know, makes those jumps, but they do. And that's the important thing to have hope in, is that they do. I don't even think I've made it to our second question. <laughs> This has been the best conversation. I, I, I'm telling you, this has been the best conversation. I actually, I don't think I've, I've made it to our second, but I think you've answered like a lot of the questions just Let's in hear. this conversation. So, you know how your book inspired me. You know, and I, I've shared that. Okay, so, so I am getting back to the questions writing this wonderful book, what are some of, besides some of these wonderful nuggets of wisdom that you're sharing with me, what are some of the other hopes that you wanted your readers to take away from your book?
1: Um, You know, above all, because I'm a writer, I I wanted to create a good read, actually. I wanted people to enjoy reading a book that's not about a totally happy subject.
0: And it is. Whenever
1: I got too, you know, like too down and deep, I always made sure I moved on to something a little bit more uplifting because you know what life is like that and um you have good days and bad days and you know you can't you can't have a book that's just all the bad days but anyways one thing that was really important for me is I wanted people to feel less alone yes. because we're surrounded by people who have you know I, the expression neurotypical children and you know again I have the most lovely wonderful thoughtful friends but sometimes you just can't be part of a conversation or they're talking about things that you're just, I'm never gonna experience. And my friends spare me talking about stuff all the time. I mean, they are really conscious, but you know, you're around other people talking about this milestone or this happy event or whatever. It's not, it's not happening in our life or yeah. whatever. And, but there's a lot of, listen, you know, there's a lot of people out there who have similar challenges and we're not alone. And we're going to make it through, you know, not, not always well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes better than others, but um, I just, that was, that was really important to me. I mean, you know, you love the idea that you could actually change somebody's life, but you don't expect that. And I also want people not to be so hard on themselves because yeah. people are well-meaning and they give advice all the time. And I do think we can learn from other people and I cherish good advice But this whole business of bad advice, really, I I find that difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah. It is extremely isolating. And it's really hard because we don't parent traditionally when we have a child that has an FASD or, or other neurodiversity. And we live in a world where, why don't you traditionally, you know, so we have to let go of expectations. And I think that once that happened, really, it was like, it was just an aha moment. You know, once I was, I, I just let go of that. Like you said, that bad advice, the, you know, and I don't even, I, I like, it's almost like I've kind of developed the filter to say, Oh, yep. That's not even coming through because I know that's, you know, not meant. And, When you when you get to do that, and it takes a while, and you still get susceptible. I mean, there's still some zingers that people say that I'm just like, why did I even listen to that? You know, why did I? But yeah, you know, I mean, it takes me a while, you know. But when you're able to connect with someone, you know, and like I said, I never in my wildest dreams when I read that book, you know, a little more than six years ago, thinking that you're going to be talking to her and you're going to be telling her like how much of a difference she made in your life and that you know your own podcast I know. again again i didn't even know what a podcast was back then you know <laughs> i wasn't one of those pioneers you know yeah. but oh my goodness so let's see talking about now let's talk about the newbies because you and i are talking you know you and i are like seasoned mama bears you know we've we've been on this journey for a while for those people who are listening that have littles, that have young children or even babies, and they suspect or maybe they they know there's documentation or whatever, what words of advice can you give to them on why it's important to get a diagnosis?
1: Uh, th- I think that's a really good question. Um, first of all, I think it helps to understand that you haven't been responsible for creating the difficulties that your child is having. And so you, you're, you're dealing, you're getting away from any shame or whatever, and realizing it's, it's not an emotional thing. There's something physically wrong with this child. And not that there's easy solutions, but it helps you working with the schools. It helps you find social services. It may help you find some funding for your child. It may help you understand your child better so that you can create an environment in the home that works better for them. I think it's a real kindness to make an effort to get a diagnosis if you think the child should have one because people and systems are very quick to judge when somebody doesn't follow a path like everybody else. And probably your child's not going to be able to do that. And I mean, you know, some children with FASD get in trouble with the law. Mm-hmm. And it, it, if if the police, if the justice system understands that your child has FASD, it does, it start. my understanding is it's starting to make a real
0: difference. It is. And in fact, even in Canada, I know that there's actual an FASD court system, which yes. is, you know, yes. U.S., we need to get catch up with that because that, that is something that, Again, if you think about it, you know, FASD is a brain-based disability. So of course, if somebody gets in trouble with the law, that should be a consideration and that should be, it should be part of either the rehabilitation process or part of the care process or whatever. Yeah. And as a mom, I, I know, I'm sure you feel this same way, but it breaks my heart to think of how many people who are in the judicial system who have undiagnosed it. FASD.
1: Well, they talk about, you know, the revolving door, yeah. someone going into prison, serving time, coming out, repeating the same things. For many people with FASD, they don't understand yeah. um, consequences. Yep. They don't understand consequences. Yep. I mean, just you just see it. You just know this is part of the pattern. Yeah. So I really think a diagnosis helps you advocate for your child yes. better. So that you know that how to move forward and i think it really helps the child too and also i think it helps the child taking it helps them take away if they feel a sense of blame you know why can't i get this together why don't i understand why aren't i you know good in school like my friends are Mm. why aren't i going to college or why can not i do this that and the other yeah yeah also they need supports And they, with supports, many people with FAS can do remarkably, remarkably well. Mm -hmm. So you want to find out what supports are needed. And I think you can, I think there's lots of supports that you can get, but it does take work and it's very tiring.
0: You and I both know it really is a full-time job. All of the phone calls and the paperwork and the visits and the, yeah i don't want to be a downer here michael's 33
1: and it's still i wouldn't say it's a full-time job but it's still it's, yeah. a, it's a job yeah, still. yeah. i, yeah. I want to mention one thing that i didn't say because this may be helpful or not. michael um lives in a group home now things have gotten very bad at home at one period of time and we were lucky to find a very very good place that michael was comfortable with and i think he was kind of interested in, in being out of the home, but he couldn't live on his own. So I, I felt very guilty about it. And we went to, for interviews and whatever. And Michael seemed like he, this is something that he really wanted. Anyways, he, he, he's in the group home during the week. He comes and stays, well, COVID, everything's different now, but yeah, normally yeah. he comes home here on Friday nights. He goes back on Sunday nights. When he first moved there, I felt so guilty on, on Sunday nights sending him home. And he went, you know, he kind of went gladly. I think he feels a sense of independence. Mm -hmm. I think it does work for him. It was very hard for me to accept, but I also want to say it was the best thing that happened for Sarah. Our Robbins and my relationship suffered during the time when things were really difficult with Michael. And I do have to say that's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. And I hope people who are having marital difficulties because of their child, um, they understand that that's not unusual or, nothing that I mean it it really does happen I have to admit it was very good for us having Michael uh, out of the home we realized that one year he had gone to a farm when he had dropped out of school he went to a farm that was run by one of the adolescent social service agencies it was a fabulous year for him on the farm he just did beautifully and we it was a really healthy healthy year for our family without Michael and I'm not ashamed of it. And I hope people understand it's nothing. It's a wonderful resource and we need help. And if we can get it. And absolutely, I think group homes can be great for some kids, Mm -hmm. um, others not. I think it's really important to make sure the child goes, that it's a good one because there's some that are not good and you don't.
0: And you bring up a really good point, Linda, that, that we talk about Um, our kids. You're they're always going to have this, disability. They're always going to have this diagnosis, but what we can do as parents is we can give them that interdependence. So like Michael, he has his independence in the group home, but yet he has help. He has accommodations, you know, you have to understand. In fact, I just ordered a book today about that, about how you should not feel guilty if you're adult child, and we say adult chronologically, you know, is not leaving the nest, you know, just like everybody else. No, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. Or if they leave and if they go to either a group home or assisted, you know, any type of supportive environment or something, it's different. Just like the diagnosis is different for everyone what you see as them turning into an adult is going to be different for everyone. And I'm glad you're bringing that up because there are good group homes out there. There are good supportive living environments out there. You know, again, you know, just like you say, you keep saying, you know your kid best better than anybody. And you knew that for Michael, that group home was a great fit. And you you talked about that in your book too, which was really reassuring too, especially for you know me, I'm coming up on the beginning of of the chronological adulthood with with our son, so I'm really glad you, you're bringing that up. Mm-hmm. So we and now I'm looking at our questions. We we've addressed many of, of our questions we have. So I love that your story, even though it took your journey took place many years ago, it's still what we call evergreen because it's still applicable to so many of us. You know, it's still a journey that that we're all taking. What are you doing now? I mean, I know COVID has kind of put a damper on a lot of things, but what are your plans now? I know your book is is such a huge force in advocating for parents and families. I know you were recently on Jeff's show. You're on, you're on this show. How how are things going for you guys now?
1: Well, um, you know, we're doing remarkably well considering COVID. Um both my husband and I are semi retired So we're people who haven't lost our jobs. We haven't lost our businesses. You know, we don't have to work on the front lines. I think we feel very grateful that we're in the position that we're in. So I have to say that. I have been a writer, always worked in communications. I've just written a, a children's chapter book. If I'm lucky, it'll get published, we'll see. It's a bad time to be publishing books. And I'm spending still a huge time looking after Michael's need and Sarah. The people in his group home are well-meaning and they're very caring and they're not necessarily that skilled or knowledgeable. Michael seems more capable than they, he is. So they decided it was time to do more semi-independent living for Michael. Great idea, I'm all for it. But that meant that he should be cooking and making his own meals. Well, okay, great, wonderful idea, love it. And they just sort of let him loose. Well. Michael buys Coke, Cokes, and luncheon meat, and like Wonder Bread, and he's making these horrible meals for himself. So, you know, they mean well, and I I get that. And I do try teaching Michael how to cook. He's not really interested, but he appears like, okay, sure, I'm going to cook. I'm going to go grocery shopping. So he's eating these ridiculously horrible meals, and I have to work with the staff, and I always have to be kind. And thankful to them mm-hmm. and you know work with them to teach them how to teach Michael or whatever so yeah. it really doesn't
0: stop it doesn't you're right advocating for your child does not stop it yeah. it doesn't stop right. it just looks different at different it's, stages yeah, of life it's, it's yeah, yeah. oh man talking to you I just this has been such a blessing talking to you is like it's like a realization honestly it really is i again i keep saying this but i just never in my wildest dreams thought that i would be talking to the person whose book
1: got you would be interviewing me i know
0: i know i know oh linda so how can people before we end this amazing episode of of just thankfulness that I share to you and, and so many other, I have recommended your book to so many people. Um, I know before we, we share your information and before we talk about our hope takeaway, you mentioned on Jeff's show about the, uh, can't put it down folder. Tell me about that because I love that. And I would probably have been one of those people who had written you that note if I had the time back then.
1: (laughs) Well, I, I was getting, you know, you, you put a book out there, you don't know what's going to happen. And, um, you know, it's not like I have my email address in the <laughs> book or whatever. So people have to find a way to get in touch with you. I said, but I, I kept getting these emails and they're wonderful and people say kind words. Well, you know, the first group were friends and family, so right. you can't really trust them. And then I kept noticing that I was getting these emails from people and they were saying the same thing. I read your book. I started reading your book and I couldn't put it down. And then they'd go on and say these other things when they finished through whatever. So, and then I'd get another one. I um, was reading your book. I couldn't put it down. I stayed up till 4 a.m. in the morning. And then I would get another one and just some version of it, I couldn't put it down. So I was telling my husband about it and I started laughing and I said, I'm going to create a folder on my desktop, on my computer. And it's, and I have it, it's called, I couldn't put it down. I love and that. I just love looking at it. I just look at the folder. I, I don't know. if to <laughs> the But, um, how nice that you could actually write some of the people say, yeah. I couldn't put it down. And yeah. I laugh because it's not like a mystery that you want to know how it ends. It's not exactly. like, a spoiler crate, you know, is, are the couple going to get married? Are they going to, you know, fall in love? You know, is the detective going to solve the crime, it's a book about my family, <laughs> So that made me feel very good. And that's been very nice. I had to write this book. There was something, I had to get it out. People say it's cathartic writing. I didn't feel it was cathartic at all. I found it actually very, very painful to write, to bring up memories. It was actually very hard to do, but I really felt that there was a story in there and I had to tell it as a writer. And the biggest challenge I had in writing, and I think many people have it when they write, the best writing, in my opinion, is if you write the way you talk yeah and very often when people when we write we sort of translate we want to sound like we're intelligent or smart or write the way we learned in school right and people speak beautifully and they speak from the heart and i think you need and it's a skill to learn how to write like that and during the period of writing the book i, I really learned how to be who i was in writing as well as when i talk and I, that that was a very nice thing for me to learn
0: That's great.
1: And I remember the day my book was coming out to be published. I live in a small I live in Toronto, which has like five million people, but I live within a small community on an island right off of downtown Toronto. And there's 750 people who live here. And trust me, I know every one of them and they know me. Mm -hmm. And the book is coming out, and I'm thinking, I I don't mind if people in North Carolina Mm -hmm. read my book. And know that I had marital difficulties. I mean, that's okay. But my next door neighbor now knows that, you know, our mm-hmm. marriage was really suffering because of Michael,
0: yeah. or that
1: Sarah felt that she wasn't, you know, it's like, what am I doing? What am yeah. I doing? Anyways, mm-hmm. I did it and I lived through it, and they yeah. still love me, and we're still neighbors and friends. And, you know, you survived. I think people like it when you're open and they respect it. And you got to go for it, but it's not easy to bear your soul.
0: No, it's not. But, it helps i think it helps other people grow and it did for me your journey helped me grow as as a person as a mom as and then now as as an advocate and as somebody who's you know advocating for the FASD community so I like to end our episodes on what we call a hope takeaway. What are some words of hope? and you've shared a lot of words of hope in our conversation, but what are some words of hope that you have for parents of kids, teens, young adults with FASD that will help them on this journey?
1: Well, first of all, I really do think that there's reason to feel hope, but I don't want to act naive and say to everybody, it's going to get better. I believe it will for most people, you know, I really believe stick with it. It's hard, it's, gonna, it's going to get better. But it, everybody's different and it doesn't always work out the way you hope it will. But you're gonna survive, you're gonna make it through. And um, you know, people have faith, keep your friends, stay close to family, find the supports. There's other people out there just like you who need friends, who need to talk, who need a hand to hold you have something you've learned so much from your journey with your kid give what you've learned to somebody else you have something to give outside of your home maybe your home and your family and your children aren't going to be exactly what you hoped it would be so try to find some of that meaning in your life that you may need outside of your home and with other people because you're very special you were given a challenge and you've stuck with it and you know life Life is harder for us than many other people. Doesn't mean that other people don't have it harder than us, because they sure do. But not everybody goes through this. You know, some people do sail through, you know, not completely because people hide all kinds of things, but some people do have it easier. And you're amazing because you don't have it easy.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that.
1: So, I Linda, quite before, but it's just you know, I'm just you're you're bringing out, you're just making me think about things, and I didn't know that was in there, but I think it's actually true, you know.
0: It is. It is true, and I also think that we get to experience victories that not many other people do. And, and they're, they're very precious victories, you know, and, and they're victories that a lot of other people, yeah, little victories, you know, that, that other people take for granted, but are like inside, it's like New Year's Eve for us because, you know, oh my goodness, I've been waiting years for this to happen.
1: I just told you, my son is 33 and he's starting to say thank you on his yeah. own. more often. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me to say some,
0: that's a some victory,
1: Best friend, mm-hmm. my, you know, like it sounds so small and it's not, nope,
0: but I get it. I totally get it. It, you know. I, t- I get it i totally get it people can email um us at info at fasd if, if they want to send you a message or anything your you book is a- put
1: my email out
0: i <laughs> just if you have questions send them to us and i will filter them for you because i
1: really don't that's right <laughs> i am happy to hear from people that's and, right um if people want to buy the book, it is on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, I hate to only support Amazon because there's booksellers out there, but with COVID and I don't know what's available. So, you know, Barnes and Noble used to um,
0: carry it. And I think that's where I bought it from was Barnes and Noble.
1: (laughs) You order it through Brunswick books. If people are listening. Yep. Yep. From, yeah there you know there's a description
0: but if if you google not exactly as planned by Linda Rosenbaum, then then you, yeah. you you will be able to find and, and like i said you can also go onto our our resource page and under books you will find Linda's book there and you can click on it and it'll give you the link so, um,
1: I have, it's not up to date and I apologize. I do have a website, lindarosenbaum.com.
0: Oh, okay. Good. Good. Yeah. So that's good to know. And I actually think I visited your website when, when your book first came out. I remember that because yeah. I remember seeing pictures of Michael's wood carvings on your website. Yes. Yes. That's right. It's
1: totally not up to date. I think the front page <laughs> talks about my book launch, which was 2014 or
0: whatever.
1: But- <laughs> see what I look like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Linda, thank you so much for being on FASD Hope. Again, I feel like I've known you for years and I'm just so thankful to Jeff Noble for arranging for us to have that surprise meeting. And then just for being able to, to, you know, to get to know you. And um, I just have to say, thank you thank you. Your book changed my life and for the better. And it started a snowball that led to an avalanche that led to just a completely different world. And it's one that I can't imagine going back to how we were before it. So thank you. You And I'm sure that there are many others out there who, who would like to thank you too, but thank you from me, from mom to mom. I, I just I appreciate everything you've done. Thank you, Natalie.
1: It was a real pleasure for me. And it was lovely talking to you.
0: Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out fasdhope.com. Or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember to be informed. Take care and always have hope.